Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Make It Count, with a message titled, Finishing Well. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 8 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I have entitled my message, Finishing Well, and as we come to the end of 2 Timothy, the reader should be aware that he or she is reading the last words of the Apostle Paul. They're an indicator of how he finished his earthly life, and we would be amiss if we only thought about last words of Paul in you know some kind of a biographical fashion. Rather, these words are written for our benefit. It should interest every one of us. I mean, what a tragedy it would be if we end our days having only a record of shame and failure. I am, as always, in my daily devotions, reading through the Bible in a year, but this year I'm also reading a book entitled Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. And the Puritans often prayed about life's end. And in today's devotion, I read these words of a prayer. It's a request made to God on this day. It said, May I be increasingly prepared for life's remaining duties as well as being prepared for the solemnities of a dying hour, as well as the joys and services that lie beyond the grave. (laughs) That's a wonderful prayer at the beginning of a day, a request as to how we should view life and that day, never forgetting the hour of our own death, as well as the next hour that comes after that. If you're old, you should be interested in this, of course, but if you're young, this should interest you as well, perhaps even more. Because this race called life is won or lost at the end. And in 2 Timothy 4 verse 7, Paul tells Timothy, I've finished the race. Well, am I telling you a secret? If I tell you, we're all going to finish the race one day. The race doesn't simply go on. It's sheer foolishness if we simply carry on racing without ever asking where the end point is or to where this race is leading. Furthermore, the end will come far sooner than we can imagine. This adventure called life is going to end, and it will end quickly. Paul is telling us he's not only finished the race, he's finished well. So look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Therefore there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, Paul said, he would receive the victor's crown. So let's ask ourselves, what is that? Well, first of all, I think it's the best translation of the Greek word is less a crown and more a prize or a reward. You know, in the ancient world, the victor of a race would receive a wreath. It was made up of foliage or greenery. Uh, Paul makes use of that very same image back in 1 Corinthians 9.25, where he writes, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And so unlike our Olympic medals, for instance, I mean, those were a wreath woven from ivy leaves and flowers, and they didn't last. But here in 2 Timothy, that's not the picture has in mind. The wreath we will receive is a wreath or a crown, not made of plants, but of righteousness. And the idea here is that Paul was describing the rewards that are given in consequence of having lived a life that is pleasing to God. So let's be clear about the point, shall we? All who have truly repented of their sins and trusted in Christ receive eternal life. And so when we read this, how are we to understand this crown rewarded in consequence of righteousness? I mean, does it mean the reward is added 
after eternal life is granted? I mean, what does Paul have in mind? Now, context is everything when understanding a passage. So go back to verse 7. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. That's what Paul is talking about. He's been fighting the fight. Christ has given him to fight. He's finished the course that Christ has called him to run. He's not denied the faith. He has kept the faith. He's proclaimed it. He's believed it. He's lived it right until the end. And henceforth, says Paul, you know, other translations simply translate that word henceforth as now. That is, now that I've finished this race, or in consequence of how I've run this race, I'm anticipating the prize of the victor. Now, let me use an illustration that might work here. It was August 7th, 1954, when the British Empire Games were being held in the city of Vancouver, British Columbia. Now, prior to 1954, there was a belief among many that no human being could run a mile in under four minutes. But earlier that year, in May, Roger Bannister of England had run a mile in three minutes, 59.4 seconds. He stunned the world. Then just 46 days later, Australian John Landy ran the mile in three minutes, 57.9 seconds, breaking Bannister's record by a second and a half. And so on August 7th, 1954, the only two men in history to have done the impossible run a mile in under four minutes. They faced off at Empire Stadium in Vancouver. And that race has since then forever been called the Miracle Mile, for on that day, both men, both of them, broke the four-minute mile to the astonishment and to the delight of the crowd. But to be truthful, everyone believed that's what they would be seeing. But who would win? Well, John Landy led for most of the race. But as they came close to the finish line, Landy, who at times led by a great deal, found that Bannister was catching up. Indeed, he was right behind him, and that's when Landy made his crucial mistake. He looked over his left shoulder, believing that that was where Bannister was trying to pass him on the inside. And in that action, he lost a step, and Bannister burst right by him on the right, and he won the race. Now, perhaps Bannister would have won regardless, but I argue that Landy was a better runner. And there's no doubt that Landy's mistake gave him no chance to win the race. So why am I telling that story? I'm using that story to make the point. There has been many a man or a woman who have run well, but in the end, right at the last, they forfeited the race. You know, in life, some become bitter in their later years. You know it. Others lose faith. I once spent time with an older man who told me all the regrets in his life. And he said, at one point in time, the Lord had called him to be a pastor. And he had said, no. Now that he was in his older years, he was overwhelmed with the sense that his entire life had been wasted. And I wondered how one act of disobedience could not have been countered by another act of genuine repentance and then a willingness to run on. He seemed to have been frozen by his one act and never moved beyond it. You know, some make major mistakes. You know, their sins find them out. And the end of life is one of disgrace. 1 Timothy 5.24 says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. That's to say, some people's sins end their life of following Jesus on the spot, and some appear to have been following Jesus for a lifetime, only to have had their sins discovered later or even brought to light at the last judgment. So here's the awful truth. Some people ran well for a season and end the race with the whimper of defeat. They have denied Christ. Look, I'm not saying that finishing well means that we end life on a high note. That's not often the case. 
Our Lord and Savior died on a cross. Paul died at the end of an executioner's chopping block. Some die in an old folks home with the ravages of Alzheimer's or in pain. The death of believers is not guaranteed to be like that of Moses, for instance, who died in full vigor when the Lord took him. And furthermore, as we will see, some come to their end of their lives when so many others are abandoning them and they're left all alone. But that's not the victory that Paul had in mind. The victory is to have kept the faith until the end. The issue is, have we denied our Lord or have we ended our years in disobedience? You know, some do not end that way. They, they ran well for a season and they end with the whimper of defeat. I mean, how would you like to be like that? You know, but some end life with a shout of triumph. I mean, they cross the finish line to an explosion of cheers from heaven as they enter the throne room of God. I mean, how do you want to end? I mean, do you think about that? What's your plan in the race you're called to run? In 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And the point is not, you know, beat everyone. The point is, Win the race Christ has set before you. Fight the good fight until he calls you home. Finish the race that was set before you. Keep the faith that has been entrusted to you. So notice what this passage says. The crown of righteousness is not the same as the rewards that believers get at the end of the day. The crown of righteousness is the same as the crown of salvation. And I'm saying that just to get to heaven... You need to fight the good fight and finish the race, and when you do, to have kept the faith all the way to the end. So you do remember what Paul said back in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know, in the last days, he said, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, and, and so forth. And you remember what Jesus said, it's found in Mark 13, verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's so important not to confuse this matter. There are some who will come to faith in the last hours of their life, and yes, they're truly saved. But however long you're saved, you must remain in your salvation. So however long it is, fight the good fight until the end of the race and receive the crown of righteousness. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent, trustworthy Bible teaching to Canadians. The result of faithful Bible teaching is thousands of lives being encouraged, challenged, even transformed from coast to coast. What is accomplished can be attributed to people like you who share a heart for the Bible, but also those who share a heart to provide Bible teaching resources beyond our borders. Partnerships around the world ensure that we do our part to sow God's Word through Bible teaching programs, print resources, and Bible teaching conferences beyond the confines of country, culture, or language. February is Back to the Bible Canada's International Ministry Month. Your one-time gift toward our $50,000 target or considering becoming an international monthly partner would do so much. To give or to sign up for monthly partnership, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I once had a very dear friend. He's now with the Lord. But when things got tough, he used to say, God knows. And I love that. God knows. God observes. 
God remembers. God has not forgotten me. And when I'm faithful to Christ and no one else knows that I'm being faithful, God knows. See, the wonderful truth we should have discovered is that God awaits to reward those who are faithful unto the end. And that's why Paul reminds Timothy that God will not only award him the crown, but also all who have loved his appearing. That is, all who anticipate the second coming of Jesus and are faithful to the end will anticipate that crown. Now, let's go to the next section of the book. The temptation, when we come to the end of 2 Timothy, is to read, you know, this is just a series now of personal notes, stuff, you know, of which personal letters are made. You know, there are names here and names that have long since, you know, passed on. And we're, we're tempted to say, you know, since I don't know these people, there's nothing to do with me. But a closer examination, well, we'll soon realize that these are the last words of Paul, and they present us with a picture of what it means to run the race in such a way so as to win the prize. So let's go to 2 Timothy 4, verse 9. Very simply says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Paul wants Timothy to drop his ministry in Ephesus, at least for a time. Paul sent him there in the first place. Now he wants him to leave his ministry and the congregation and make his way to Rome. Now, there are those who have criticized Paul for making this request. You know, it's very dangerous for Timothy to go to Rome. I mean, given the insanity of Nero and the governor and the savage persecution against Christians, I mean, was it not risky to ask Timothy to come and visit him? You know, is this a selfish request from a lonely old man? But should we be tempted to think that way, we do well to remember the command that is given to believers in Hebrews 13, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. See, it's a sign of faithfulness to Christ that persecution doesn't break the solidarity in the body of Christ. Christians remembering and visiting those who have been imprisoned for the faith, that's a divine mandate. It testifies that we are of one body. It testifies to our confidence in the resurrection of Christ. It makes us bold to be with those who are suffering. Remember also that Paul had a great love for Timothy, so he's not ready to throw Timothy's life away. But he does know that if Timothy is to fight the good fight, he has to do so in times and in places where there's great pressure that will be on him not to stand with those who are in Christ. Okay, let's keep reading now. We come to 2 Timothy 4, 10 to 12. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. You see what's going on? Even though in prison, Paul is still, while he's able, giving leadership to the church that Christ has entrusted to his care. You know, in the last hours of his life, he's taking his best workers. He's sending them on ministry assignments to strengthen the churches. And the church in Ephesus is not going to be left without a leader. I hope you notice that. Tychicus was taking this letter to Timothy, and he would replace Timothy in his absence. No doubt, just as Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus with instructions, he was now doing the same with Tychicus, and Timothy was to come to him and receive instructions for his next assignment. And that's why what we read in verse 10a is so devastating. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and he's gone to Thessalonica. So who's Demas? Well, we know that before 2 Timothy was written, 
Paul had been in prison in Rome before. And during that time, he wrote a small letter to Philemon. It's a personal letter to a dear friend. And so let me read the ending of that letter. It's found in verses 23 and 24. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas. Yeah, notice that Demas and Luke, my fellow worker. So Epaphras was in prison with Paul and Demas, along with such notables as Luke, the author of the book of Luke, worked with Paul in spreading the gospel while Paul was in Rome. And during those days, Demas was fighting a very good fight. He was keeping the faith. And then somewhere along the line, I mean, maybe it was all the hardship. Maybe it was raw fear. Maybe the cost of following Jesus just got too high. I mean, maybe he was offered a, a peaceful pastorate in Thessalonica. I don't know. You know, a good salary. But, but one thing is sure. When Paul needed him the most and when the stakes had never been higher, Demas decided he loved the world more than the cause of Christ. You know, young people should listen carefully at this point. And the older that you get, the more swayed you will become by the lure of comfort. You'd think it would be the other way around, but sadly, it's not always the way it is. It's the young who make the greatest sacrifices, and it's the old who sometimes spend their remaining years clutching to the things that they've gained in this life. And when Demas left, because the cost was so high, and the allure of the pleasures this world could offer seemed so great, he must have devastated Paul. That's because the people you invest in deeply, when they turn from you, they hurt you the most. There have been several times in my own ministry that the people I help get into ministry have wounded me. I mean, every person in ministry has known those moments. And in the most trying hour of his life, Demas hurt Paul deeply. And what of this man, Crescens? Well, Paul simply says that he went to Galatia. There are, however, other manuscripts that say he went not to Galatia, but to Gallia, Uh, One letter changed, and that would mean that if that's correct, that he went to France. And Well, either way, you know, we don't know which, but we know he was following Paul's assignment. Now, why did he go? Well, Paul had sent him on ministry. Titus says Paul had gone to Dalmatia. Now, Titus was always a wonderful resource for Paul. You know, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6, Paul writes, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Or read 2 Corinthians 8, verse 16. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. And see, I have no doubt that Titus had been sent out by Paul. And I have no doubt that Paul felt that loss keenly. He missed him because of his encouragement. And that meant that all of this team was now gone and only Luke was left. But what a contrast we find between verse 10 and verse 11. Watch it carefully. In verse 10, Demas loved this world. But now notice verse 11. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Do you know the details behind that remarkable statement? Let's remember the history. It's in Acts 15, and it records the beginning of Paul's second missionary trip. And as you might know, the trip began with controversy, and Luke records it for us. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with him to the work. 
and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas. So contrast the difference. Demas started well. Mark started badly. Demas ended badly. Mark ended well. Mark's lack of commitment to the gospel in his early days actually broke up the greatest missionary team in history. Mark was the guy who ran away when things got tough. But somewhere along the way, and we don't know how, this young man who had stumbled out of the gate had redeemed himself. And in the last period of his life, Paul writes Timothy, oh, by the way, come and bring Mark. He's very useful to me in ministry. And that's the story of running the race, isn't it? That's what Paul has been emphasizing. It's not how you start. It's how you end. It's not about the mistakes and the sins and the disappointments that you had along the way. God is gracious, and he will forgive you if you will but confess your sins and seek his face. It's about how we finish the race. It's about whether we will, in the end, fall in love with this present world or come to our senses and run well unto the end. Will we look back and be disqualified? Or will we, in spite of our own weaknesses, press on to win the prize of the goal which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Indeed, this is the challenge of this passage. If you've fallen in love with the world, come to your senses, repent of your sins, put your hand back to the plow and gain the prize. Don't let anything hold you back. Fight the fight, win the race, collect the prize. Thanks, John. You know, there are those who come to Christ that regularly question their salvation. How can one know that they are truly saved? Yeah, first of all, I want to say that when we question our salvation, most of the time uh, we're looking at ourselves and uh, we're also concerned with our own sin. And yeah, I think as we willfully sin, yeah, there are reasons to question our salvation. But what we need to become aware of is Not that we become good enough, but we're aware of the promises of God in Christ Jesus through his cross. In his death on the cross, he becomes the atoning sacrifice for our sins so that our sins were laid on Christ and that he has borne them for us and he is our righteousness. We're not our righteousness. He is our righteousness. So put your eyes on Jesus and believe what he has done. It's all a matter of faith and trust and confidence in him. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our last message in the series, Make It Count, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Each month, we send out a free monthly update email that provides unique ministry content that includes our 5 and 5 audio program. Five questions in five minutes in conversation with those intimately involved in the mission and vision of Back to the Bible Canada. The email also includes advanced resource offers, insight into current and future programming, and the ways that you can be involved. The ministry update email is available simply by subscribing online at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. 
In the ministry update email in February, expect to hear more information about our international ministries and the unique impact that is being made in the world with Back to the Bible Canada programs, resources, and conferences. For more information or to send your gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.